This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jelena Sofronievich. Almost three quarters of adults in the UK don't get the recommended seven to nine hours of sleep a night and one in seven survive on dangerously low levels. So are we facing a national or international sleep crisis? I'm delighted to be joined by two very special guests to talk all things sleep. Professor Russell Foster is an expert in circadian neuroscience at the University of Oxford and the author of Lifetime. Hi, Russell. Hi, good to see you. And Lisa L. Lewis is a freelance journalist and the author of The Sleep Deprived Teen, Why Our Teenagers Are So Tired and How Parents and Schools Can Help Them Thrive. Hi, Lisa. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's rewind the clock. Russell, eight hours is often touted as the golden standard for sleep. Why is that the case and when did that become the case? Well, I have to say that statements like that do um, irritate me a little bit. <laughs> the reason being is They're that... They're asking the, part to do so. <laughs> well, well, we've become, I think, somewhat used to the sergeant majors of sleep screaming that you must do this and you must do that. And sleep is very much like shoe size. Uh, one size does not fit all. And in fact, in the, the healthy adult range, um, as defined by the National Sleep Foundation, is between six hours and 10 or even 11 hours in, in adults. And I think what we each of us need to do is define what our particular sleep needs are in terms of both duration and timing, and try and accommodate those sleep needs with the demands uh, that, are, that are placed upon us. But the key thing is we've really got to work out what's best for each of us. So what is it that makes five hours dangerously low? We know, of course, that, that sleep is incredibly important, and I would not want to marginalise the importance of sleep in any way. And we know, for example, if we don't get enough sleep, we increase sort of mood fluctuations and negative salience. It's really fascinating that the tired brain remembers negative experiences, but fails to remember the positive ones. Irritability, anxiety, loss of empathy, frustration, risk-taking impulsivity. That's a really very interesting one, particularly, and I'm sure Lisa will talk about this within the young. Also, there's an inclination to use stimulants and sedatives. We have poor memory, consolidation of, of, of memory, poor communication skills, and indeed reduced social connectivity. And that's the sort of short-term impacts upon our cognition and behavior. Longer term, uh, as we see in night shift workers, can impact upon cardiovascular disease, altered stress responses, changed infection levels, risk of cancer, you know, and of course, metabolic abnormalities such as diabetes too, and, and, and of course, obesity. So we know that sleep is incredibly important. And below a certain cutoff, I think we would all begin to worry. Five hours is almost certainly too short for most people, if not all people. But there's a comfortable range from which we can work within. So Lisa, what kind of things determine how much sleep we need? Well, 
I have really focused primarily on teens because um, that, that was really the focus of my book and based on the fact that there is such chronic sleep deprivation when it comes to our adolescents. So for teens, um, the, the range, according to the National Sleep Foundation, is 8 to 10 hours. And to Russell's point, that is a range because of human variability. Nevertheless, the vast majority of our teens do need to be ideally somewhere in that range for optimal health and well-being and functioning. But the issue is, at least in the United States, that far too many are not getting anywhere near that amount. Um, some of the most recent data that, that I found when I was researching for the book was from the CDC. And what they found was in 2019, they surveyed U.S. high schoolers. And at that point, only 22% of high schoolers said that they were getting at least eight hours of sleep on a school night. So that means that only one in five of our teens are even in that range. And it really gives you a sense of just how widespread this sleep deprivation is. And it's chronic sleep deprivation, which really has serious implications. Some studies suggest that waking young people at 7am is the same as waking an adult at 4 why is that? And how does a lack of sleep affect young people in particular? At adolescence, our kids undergo a, a shift in their sleep schedules. There's actually a circadian rhythm shift, which means that their entire sleep schedule sl shifts later than it once was. So younger kids bound out of bed early in the morning, they are tired and, you know, will, will easily fall asleep, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, what have you. That's not the case for our teens. They are not typically feeling sleepy until about 11 o'clock at night. And one of the reasons for that is because melatonin, which is what primes us to feel sleepy, begins to be released later than it once was. It also doesn't subside until later in the morning than it used to. So if a teen is not feeling sleepy till about 11 o'clock, well, you just do the math. For them to get 8 to 10 hours of sleep, they would need to be able to sleep in that much longer in the morning. And when schools start too early, that cuts into that sleep time. So we do have schools in the United States, high schools, that right now have start times of 7.30, even some as early as 7 o'clock. And that's mandatory first period attendance. So you can see how that really cuts into our teen sleep time. The other thing, of course, is that they're oversleeping on free days. And, uh, and, and therefore not getting the sort of circadian signal of morning light, which sets the body clock um, and stabilizes the system. We, we did a study um, a few years ago looking at whether there were morning types and evening types. In fact, it was early university students. And what was so fascinating is that the longer the chronotype, the more late that the teenager was, the more evening light they were getting, which delays the body clock, and less morning and less morning light they were getting, which advances the body clock. So you've got this biological predisposition to want to go to bed later, napping, which exaggerates the, the short nighttime sleep. And distorted exposure to the light-dark cycle will actually change their chronotype, their, their timing. And so it's really important to get that morning light to set the clock and indeed get symmetrical light exposure, which many of our teens don't get, particularly on free days. Who's most at risk of sleep deprivation? Well, I think um, those in a lower socioeconomic group. Uh, they are the individuals who tend to do the night shifts 
And many people from that sector do two jobs. They have a day job and then they have a night job as well to try and bring in sufficient fun funding to keep the family going. We did a survey a few years ago uh, uh, in young people asking about their sleep. One of the questions we asked was, do you share your, your sleeping space, your bedroom, w with another person? But as a result of talking to young people, we realized that was incredibly naive. What we should have been saying, do you have a bed? Because those kids from a socio and economic, you know, the deprived, you know, groups, there was no bed for them. They were sleeping on the family sofa and, and occasionally two children on the family sofa. And so it's very much the poor that are really being most badly affected. I mean, you know, these youngsters are then getting poor quality sleep. They're then trying to get education and they're they're just too chronically tired really to get that education and so the whole thing spirals down and i think there's a real sleep crisis particularly in groups from a poor socioeconomic group i absolutely agree um in fact i ended up with a whole chapter in my book called not all teens sleep the same looking at these types of sleep disparities um, because I think these are things that sometimes we don't factor in as additional stressors that our teens have that are impacting their sleep. So everything that Russell just mentioned absolutely is the case. Um, when you do live in a uh, lower income neighborhood, lower income household, you have these issues of crowding and noise. Also, factors such as whether you feel safe either in your home or in your neighborhood impact your ability to, to get a good night's sleep, whether you're going to bed hungry. But there are also a couple other things, and I think these really sometimes do get overlooked, and that is that if you are, for instance, a, uh, a teen who is LGBTQ, you often sleep worse than your peers. If you are a teen of color, you sleep worse than your peers. In fact, adults, too, they have found this to be the case. As far as why that is, in some cases, it's discrimination. Everything from microaggressions on up that you're facing in your in your your day to day life affects your ability to sleep. And then, of course, if you don't sleep well, it affects your emotional resiliency for the next day. There are also longer term effects. Uh, they talk about two epigenetic factors, meaning that some of these sleep, um, these issues that affect your sleep can be inherited, particularly when you're talking about people of color. The other key piece is your biological sex. So if you are a girl, and by that specifically, I mean a biological female, unfortunately, you probably sleep worse. And those differences start to emerge at puberty. Girls and women are at higher risk for insomnia. But the other key piece is the menstrual cycle affects sleep. So in the United States, about half of all girls have gotten their periods by age 12. And the reality is premenstrual syndrome, cramps, all of this, which girls face, you know, on a very regular basis, can and do often impact their sleep. And this is one more factor on top of everything else they may have going on, meaning they could also be living in a lower income neighborhood. They could also be a teen of color. And then they have all the other stressors that our teens have just across the board. Russell, some of your research looks to shift work and how it can be dangerous for our health. How does sleep impact our health and immune system? Oh, crikey, that's such an interesting question. I mean, the first point to make, I guess, is that the assumption has been by employers is that night shift workers adapt to the demands of working at night. And of course, they don't. And the reason for that is that the biological clock is locked onto the light-dark cycle. And so morning and evening, you know, light is, is, is what most of us are exposed to at some level, and that locks us onto the solar day. And night shift workers are also locked onto the same 
timing. Their clocks are the same as day shift workers. And that's because there's limited amounts of light or relatively low light in the workplace, certainly much, much dimmer than uh, natural light. And then they will experience bright natural light on the journey home from the night shift or indeed in the evening. And the clock always defers to the brighter light signal. And that's invariably the environmental light as being daytime, which of course it is, and therefore they don't shift their clocks. So whilst they're trying to be active at night and do that, do their job, their whole biology is saying you should be asleep. And so the great problem is that that sector is having to override this biology as saying, you, you know, you should be asleep. And that involves an active activation of the stress axis. And of course, sustained activation of the stress axis leads to many of the problems we touched on earlier, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and all the others. So there is this classic mismatch. And one of the really important areas is is immune suppression. And so our night shift nurses and doctors, for example, during the recent COVID were were chronically sleep deprived. And as a result, when they were on the night shift, they were further um, sleep deprived. And so their immune system took a major hit. And so they were more vulnerable to infection. And so what, what studies have shown is that prior to vaccination, you need to be fully rested and immediately post-vaccination, you need to be fully rested to get optimum benefits from a vaccination. So that's the first thing. The second problem about the immunity and night shift work is that the immune system is under tight circadian control. So it's turned up during the day when we're likely to encounter other people and, and other and pathogens, but turned down at night where we're less likely to meet those pathogens. And one could argue, well, why Why isn't it on full throttle all the time? And the argument there seems to be it reduces autoimmune responses. You turn it down when it's not needed quite as much, and you turn it up when it is. But of course, what that also means is that frontline staff will have a lowered immune system because of the clock. So they're sleep disrupted, they've got lowered immunity, and their immune system anyway is not working at full pitch uh, on the night shift. So it's a double whammy for our frontline staff. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Should we rethink sleep as an active behavior? Well, I think one of my main messages really is just that we need to make sleep a priority and the fact that chronic sleep deprivation really is a public health issue, and especially so when it comes to our teens. So I think often in the U.S. there is sort of this attitude of, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, or, you know, that getting by on as little sleep as possible is some sort of badge of honor. And that's really a harmful message. And it's harmful quite literally, you know, in terms of how it, how it affects our, our, our everything that we do. Nobody does anything better when they're sleep deprived. And, you know, people get by when they're sleep deprived because they have to. They're not gaining anything from the experience. We often would hear things like, oh, well, it's good preparation for the real world. I would say, no, I do not agree. I mean, the first thing is teens need more sleep than adults do. 
they're not yet adults. They have not shifted to the uh, the adult range of sleep. And you don't prepare somebody by having them, you know, spend several years being sleep deprived. It's sort of like, you know, denying them enough air so that they can somehow get, you know, be better at, at breathing less of the air. That It just doesn't really make sense. And the other thing, of course, is after high school, which does have this compulsory attendance time where you have to be there, things really aren't like that afterwards. So when you go off to college or university, there are very few campuses where you must be, you know, taking a seven o'clock or 7.30 class, um, you know, five days a week. Absolutely agree. I mean, sleep is that behavior that makes us such a special animal, our ability to solve problems, our ability to work together and interact. So much of what makes us special is dependent upon the quality of sleep that we get at night. So we've got to embrace, embrace our sleep. And, and, and my hope is that we'll start to regard people who, <laughs> who, who come in and boast about their lack of sleep in the same way that we think about sl- smokers. We will ban them to the outer darkness, realizing that they're not only harming themselves, uh, but they're also harming the people they're around. Uh, because if you think about some of the accidents that have happened across society as a result of chronically tired individuals, the, the famous India crash where, where the, the pilot was, was in the middle of landing and because of chronic sleep deprivation, fell asleep in the middle of landing. And we know that because you could hear him snoring on the voice recorder in the cockpit. I mean, major accidents have been associated with lack of sleep. So it's not only harming ourselves and the immediate people that, that, that we are in contact with, but globally, in a sense. Um, and so we've got to start taking sleep seriously. Sleep is not for wimps. It's an incredibly important part of what makes us what we are. And, and we've got to get that educational piece within our schools. And one of the frustrating things I find, and I'm not sure what it's like in the States, Lisa, is that you know for 30% of our biology, we have nothing in the school curriculum which teaches um, the importance of sleep to our young people, which of course they could carry with them uh, as they go into adulthood um, and then develop the appropriate sleep patterns that work for them. Our sleeping patterns changed a lot over the 20th century and the percentage of people sleeping for less than seven hours quadrupled by the 90s. Why is that? Well, really, I have focused more on teens, so I can speak more to that piece of it. And then, Russell, I think you could probably speak more broadly. Again, I'm based in the U.S. I've been really focused on the the fact that there is this real epidemic of of sleep deprivation among teens. There are uh, multiple factors that have played in. In the U.S., one factor is that our school start times have gradually drifted earlier. So they did used to start, when you look at the research, high schools used to start about nine o'clock. Uh, which was ideal, obviously, from a, you know, from a sleep standpoint. They did drift earlier in the U.S., and that was due to a few different factors, suburbanization, the consolidation into larger high schools. And in many cases, districts that offer bus transportation were looking to streamline their budgets and to use just one fleet of buses for elementary, middle and high schools. And so they often instituted a staggered system of drop-offs and pickups. Well, when they did that, which oftentimes was decades ago, the research on teen sleep was not as widely known. So by default, they often put teens into those earlier time slots. And now, of course, we know that that really is not the way that that these schedules should be set up, that if anything, the middle and high schoolers who have the circadian rhythm shift, which the younger kids do not, should have the later times. But these what I call legacy schedules have endured. 
There are a couple other factors too. One that I think certainly in the U.S. I know is very much a factor is the fact that so many of our teams are overscheduled. They are just on overload. When you look at not just their time in school, the homework time, because oftentimes they are taking advanced or college level classes, advanced placement classes. They are doing sports. They're doing other extracurriculars. They may have a job. So one thing that I encourage parents to do is just to look at that, that, you know, allocation of time and see if there's even a window left of eight to 10 hours to allow teens to get enough sleep. And then the third factor I'd mention is the impact of technology which obviously has grown quite substantially. And that in itself is a huge topic because it's not just teens being on social media. Teens also have to be online to do their homework. Certainly, you know, in the United States, things have changed dramatically from when I was in school. I used to be able to submit a handwritten book report. None of our teens are doing that anymore. They have to complete their assignments online. They have to turn them in online. And what I found was so interesting was oftentimes, apparently, when teachers set a due date, well, the system will set a default turn in time of 11.59 p.m. And so that just tacitly encourages uh, teens to be online later working on their homework. But And then there's the whole social media aspect and the fact that all of those apps that, that everybody uses and adults too get sucked in, they were designed to be as deliberately immersive as possible. And teens are the perfect audience for that because they already, because of the stage of brain development that, that they're in, they are already primed for reward seeking. And so things like the likes you get in social media or the leveling up you get in video games, those all feed directly into that. Sleep is often politicized, I think, as inefficient, uneconomical. We think of Thatcher with her four hours and Trump in the US and even Mao in China, who argued that insomnia was productive. Has neoliberal economics perhaps changed the way we sleep? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I mean, if we think of classic short sleepers, such as Margaret Thatcher, um, Donald Trump and others, then Fluctuations in mood, irritability, uh, loss of empathy, the failure to, to to appreciate consequences of actions. I mean, Margaret Thatcher, towards the end of her her sort of um, time as prime minister, was far. You know, during, I'm told by people who knew her, she was very much the, very listened to people, and she very much took advice. But later on, with this chronic sleep deprivation, then it became worse, and and and, and essentially, she wasn't this thinking, really rather brilliant individual, it, it fell apart and she died with severe dementia. I guess it's still too early for Donald Trump, but many of the leaders, um, you know, uh, show this extremely extreme disregard for sleep. You know, sleep is for wimps and their behavior changes as a consequence. Frankly, I, mean, I was talking to a civil servant just the other day saying that they are so so busy, they can't actually do the research that they once did to fully inform their ministers. And indeed, the research they're doing and the briefs they're providing their ministers are not even read because those ministers can't really take it in. So we're sort of spiraling into this um, poorer sleep, poorer cognitive abilities in our decision makers. And we've got to break that cycle. I mean, seriously, because the people making decisions for us are actually chronically sleep deprived and are in no position to make decisions about anything, let alone drive a car or, or, or a country. Um, and, and so we've got to try and, and, and re-equilibrate their regard for sleep, seriously and short term. We're heading for the rocks unless we do.
final question to you both then. How can we improve our quality of sleep? (laughs) Well, I suspect we're going to say a similar thing. But what we've got to do is uh, embed the importance of sleep education within our school systems. We've got to get the message in very early. uh, And so it'll be carried through into adulthood. And that lack of education, I think, leaves many of us gasping. But it's education, not only in the schools, but also in the business sector, in our frontline workers. And I've spoken to a police officer who lost a friend because they drove into a tree at the end of the night shift. Uh, There's a study showing that 57% of junior doctors in the UK had either had a car crash or a near miss on the journey home from the night shift. And there's lots of things that we can actually do now to mitigate some of these these problems through education and simple practices. So, So just very briefly, knowing that our night shift workers and people who are chronically tired have higher rates of diabetes 2 and obesity and high risk of cancer and coronary heart disease, why don't we... We institute high frequency health checks in that sector to try and detect these problems before they become chronic. And so there are things that, that society should be doing now for these individuals, in addition to the broad educational piece. And I should just also mention that in some sectors, the divorce rate is some six times higher than uh, in individuals on the night shift compared to the day shift. And indeed, it's not just the individuals that need the education about the consequences of night shift work and poor sleep, but it's also the broader family unit needs to be able to prioritize sleep. So education and the low-hanging fruit of changing certain things um, like higher frequency health checks, like providing the appropriate nutrition. It shouldn't all be high fat, high sugar on the night shift. There's stuff we can do now. And it needs to be a sensible dialogue between employers and employees. And my great fear is that it's going to turn litigious quickly. There's going to be a whole bunch of class action suits which are going to turn around and and make people run away from this problem rather than recognize it, work together to try and solve it. We're not going to put the 24-7 society back in its bottle. But what we can do is do some really important stuff now to mitigate some of the problems. Yes, I I would agree with all of that. And particularly um, two things. The first, your point about identifying sort of particular specific populations that are more at risk for sleep deprivation. In fact, I was just thinking as you spoke about some studies that have been done looking at patient care in the hospital environment and the fact that patients often are sleeping in very brightly lit rooms and they're being woken multiple times a night so their vitals can be checked and then their meds can be given and they've done studies and you know clearly it makes sense when you think about it it would be a best practice not to interrupt their sleep multiple times a night to allow them the dark that they need in order to get more quality sleep to consolidate those checks on their vitals with when they get their meds and and they there have been efforts made in that environment as well. And of course, sleep is so vital, not only to our uh, immune system, as Russell mentioned earlier, but to recovery, to healing. I mean, that's when growth hormone is released, is when we're sleeping. So I would absolutely agree that um, identifying these these specific populations and and trying to address it uh, when it comes to teens, which has really been my focus, absolutely, it is looking at sleep hygiene. So it is not just the fact that the schools start too early, which cuts into teen sleep, but looking at what things parents can do at home, making sleep a priority in the household trying to put in place some common sense um, sleep hygiene best practices, 
the official recommendation is no tech use an hour before bedtime, recognizing things like that, how that impacts sleep. And then I guess the final message I would say is for parents to be paying attention to their sleep as well. Because when the parent is well-rested and the teen is well-rested, it sets the stage for better interactions. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Great pleasure. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Listeners, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes of The Bunker. You can also back us on Patreon. Just see our social media for details. This is Jelena Sofronievich signing out of The Bunker. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Ah, I'm up, I'm up. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Yelna Sofronievich. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers... Jacob Ashburn. <sighs> and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomasiewicz. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.